Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets with Remy Tino and Mike, the podcast where we decrypt and demystify economic, financial, and other investing concepts. Welcome to part two of Tokenizing Stocks. Last episode, we talked about a little bit of Crypto 101, sort of gave you a primer as to what crypto is and broke it down to make it a little bit easier to understand, hopefully, for everybody. Today, we're going to talk about tokenizing stocks and what the repercussions of that may be. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to discuss your financial situation on the show, email us at comments at onmarkets.com. Also, if you like the show, don't forget to hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. So Tino, tokenizing stocks, it sounds maybe a little bit more complicated than it it is, but I think the repercussions are much more vast than it sounds. What do you think? So I'll just start off by fully disclosing that I'm not an expert at all on tokenizing equities. I've read a couple of articles. I've come across this idea of tokenizing in in the past. If you remember those ICOs from maybe three, four years ago and initial coin offerings, maybe we'd touch on that a little bit as well. But the idea effectively is, let's say that you live in, I don't know, somewhere, uh, somewhere in Asia. Okay. Let's say a small country in Asia, let's say Thailand or something like that. And you want to buy Apple. Well, that's not easy to do in many instances because getting access to U.S. exchanges is very difficult to do. You have to have specific types of bank accounts, brokerage accounts, and then they have to link to the, the U.S. stock exchange. And it's just not easy. And then not to mention the fact that we've got this whole time zone issue, right? We're 12 hours away from New York City in, in some parts of Asia. So there are some of these crypto exchanges that allow you to effectively buy a, a synthetic Apple stock or a tokenized equity that tries to track as best as possible to Apple stock over time and allows you to trade that as a proxy for the actual stock itself. That's at least the idea and the purpose behind it. So the reality is if you're buying a tokenized equity, you're, you're not actually buying the equity. You're buying a synthetic representation of that equity. Yes, that's correct. And a couple of things, I guess there are two types of tokenized equities. There are collateralized and non-collateralized. And it's what it sounds like, right? I, if you're collateralized, that Apple stock probably sits in an account somewhere and that's being used as collateral to, for the underlying instrument. But also at the same time, if you think about if you own a stock, you're entitled to dividends and also So for most uh, shares of stock, some type of a shareholder vote. Uh, From what I understand, those are not always guaranteed. And in fact, if you read through some of the disclosures on these tokenized equities, they quote unquote, do their best to make sure that you get the dividend payments, but they can't guarantee it in some instances. And I haven't found one platform that actually guarantees it. Are there other costs associated? Like if I'm buying a share of Apple and the share of Apple is $312, are there other costs associated with buying a tokenized version? Is it, is it sort of like if I'm buying a, a ticket off a of StubHub and the ticket price is 40 bucks, but you know, I'm paying 20 bucks in, in service charges on top of it? I think there's some direct costs, commissions, obviously, and then the bid ask spread, whatever that is on the, the trading platform, whoever's making the market for that specific uh, tokenized equity. But I think there are other costs to consider too. You know, when Apple's trading, when the market's open, I would assume that the price is pretty close, right? Because they can, whatever the instrument they're using to, to track the price, they're probably doing so much like a lot of these cryptocurrencies are trying to follow the US dollar to some degree or whatever other currency they're using. Uh, but think about after hours trading. These tokenized equities trade 24-7, which is a, probably appealing to a lot of traders. But you know what's happening at 2 a.m. on Apple stock in New York City or even Cupertino, uh, it's hard to say that that price accurately reflects. So there might be an implicit cost or, or admittedly some benefit there too during those after hours uh, situations. I think investors also need to remember that 
with all crypto, there is a cost for exchange that is not necessarily associated with the platform that you're using, right? You know, as we discussed in the last episode, the tracking of each coin is done via the blockchain. And anytime there's a trade, the ownership exchange is quote unquote logged in that blockchain or that, that distributed ledger. There's a cost associated to that. And that cost can sometimes be extremely high. So when you say cost, Remy, are you referring to, let's say I go to Paris and I want to exchange my dollars for euros. There's a, I don't know, five, eight, 10% currency fee that I got to pay the broker to make that exchange. Is that what you're referring to? Similar. So let's say I have one Bitcoin and you want to purchase it from me. We make that exchange, but the way that it works on a distributed ledger is there are multiple machines all across the world that are actually running calculations. And I don't quite know exactly how it works. I don't know the technical aspect of it, but whatever those computers do, they are somehow validating and verifying that I am who I say I am, you are who you say you are, and that that exchange can be written to the token and that it's distributed properly. Those machines are running 24-7. They're all around. And in exchange for holding that ledger and doing all of that verification, whoever is doing the mining is actually theoretically getting paid in some fractional Bitcoin. So you have to pay for that. It can get pretty costly. So I can give you an example because I just sold a, a little bit of crypto last week. My cost for sale was $209 for one trade. That's a pretty expensive transaction fee. What was that as a percentage of the trade? I believe it was about a $4,000 trade. So what's that? 5%, right? Well, that's heavy duty. That's not that's pretty expensive yeah, that's for a $4,000 trade. That's getting right. up there. Wow. Well, all right. So we've got one issue that, you know, the call it the friction cost, <laughs> transaction cost. I mean, there's some, there's some other issues to think about here. And it's not all bad. We're not going to, I'm not going to hit on tokenized equities too much there. I think there's some positives here, but if you th there's a couple of real issues here. One, if you buy a stock, if you buy Apple on, on a U.S. exchange, you got the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, SIPC. They basically protect stock owners in the U.S. So that way, if, I mean, it wouldn't happen unless something weird was going on in the world. But let's say Charles Schwab or one of the big brokers, there's something, something bad happened. Your, your stock is yours. You're going to be okay. And that's, for all intents and purposes, guaranteed by the U.S. government. Uh, that's, that's not going to happen on these, these exchanges. I mean, uh, Remy, I mean, I'm sure you've read about, it hasn't happened in a while, but these Bitcoin exchanges, they tend to disappear sometimes. I mean, they just, they get shut down. The founders steal all the Bitcoins, like uh, the one in Japan. I forgot the name of it off the top of my head. Mount Gox. Mt. Gox, yes. Funny side note on that story. He went to jail, right? And apparently by the time he got out of jail... The Bitcoin he stole turned into billions of dollars of, of gains. So I guess he was going to get out of jail or got out of jail. The jail time was worth it. And hey, he got paid. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the other issues too. I mean, so like I said, if these things go down, you're, you're kind of in a, you're in a tough spot. And also from what I understand, tokenized equities, you can't move it from one exchange to the other. So if you buy it on Binance or whatever, whatever one that's offering these, you can't move it to, I, know, I don't think Coinbase a lot offers them, but if they were to, you couldn't move it over, which is an issue. You know, if I buy Apple stock on an exchange and I want to trade it on some other exchange or off-market exchange or, or through a dark pool, that, that option is available to me. This whole thing feels like too much of a Wild West situation to me, right? I feel like, yes, there'll be people that'll make a lot of money with it, but I also feel like there's going to be some real horror stories. If you are a trader by profession, uh, you've got to be salivating at this. And they are. Because I feel like, the yes, there's no question. I mean, you've got a tremendous amount of uneducated people entering a space they don't quite understand with virtually zero regulation. And 
there's a huge arbitrage opportunity. I, I'm not smart enough how to figure it out, but I got to assume that these tokenized equities are not tracking the underlying securities all that well. They just, they're they're just too many opportunities here to ARP that out. And I agree. I think traders are just ear to ear grin right now, just waiting for unsophisticated people in these countries to come into the market. So Tino, I'm curious, what's your opinion simply in regards to the opportunity for uh, people in countries that wouldn't otherwise have access to U.S. exchanges to be able to trade on a, you know, theoretically trade on a, on a U.S. exchange. You know, you think about innovation like this, you're effectively democratizing access to U.S. markets. And I think that's a good thing for the most part. We're globalizing markets to a certain degree, and I don't think that's uh, inherently a bad idea. I just think that um, the ability to actually do something like this. It's not just that average everyday person in the, I'm making this up, in the Ukraine or some, some other country. It's that person in that country who also knows how to take their currency, convert it to crypto, move it into a digital wallet, and then somehow know how to transact in these types of tokenized equity situations. That's a very, very small subset. So if this does take off, and, and look, there's a lot of money and there's a lot of smart people behind this right now. If it takes off, I think it's got a long way to go before it hits any type of critical mass in, in other countries. I think right now, it's like anything else. It's like the NFTs here in the US. It's for enthusiasts. Having read through this uh, quite extensively over the past couple of weeks here, you know, it really did bring back, I mentioned earlier, brought back memories of an initial coin offerings. And you know, we talk about democratizing access to US markets through tokenized equities. ICOs back in, uh, what was it, 2017 timeframe, those were in many ways meant to democratize access to IPOs. You think about initial public offerings when you take a company public for the first time. As that company, you go to an investment bank like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, and they place your stock with very large institutional buyers of that stock. So, you know, if you're an everyday person sitting at home and you want access to DoorDash's IPO back in November, you're not going to get it. You just aren't. It's, the system is designed in a way where only the biggest shareholders are going to get access to IPOs. So you think about an ICO. The idea was, okay, well, instead of issuing shares in a company, issue coins. And that coin represents a, it's effectively a tokenized equity share of a company. So with that type of a situation, anybody that had access to a digital wallet and wanted to participate in an ICO could get access to that company. So you're now opening the, the doors for people sitting at home that admittedly understood the process could buy and participate in some type of a new equity offering. I, I think that if you take ICOs, if you take tokenized equities and whatever else that we're going to see happen in the next couple months or years or whatever it is, to me, it's emblematic of 1997, 1998, when everybody knew the internet was going to be big or, or most people had a pretty good idea the internet was going to be huge, but we didn't know how. We didn't know exactly know what, what was going to happen back then or who was going to be the leaders. We didn't, Amazon, eBay, none of that. They, they were all so early on that it was hard to determine what the winners and losers were going to be. This just feels kind of like that same situation where there's a fine line between in innovation and idiocy to a certain degree, right? Where there's going to be 1% is going to be innovation that'll change the world. The rest is going to be just total garbage. So I'm curious, do you think, you know, to, to use that same analogy, yes, that, that was sort of the thought back in the 90s, but today you can't live without the internet. I mean, anybody who was born after the year 2000, they would be legitimately lost without access to the internet 24-7 you know, in their hand. Do you think the finance world and the investing world is going to go that direction as well at some point? I do. 
I think that the power of fintech, financial technology, right? These companies are coming in and innovating financial services is going to change things in ways that I don't think we begin to understand. You know, I, I used this analogy earlier of innovation versus idiocy. Well, I'd almost say fintech versus fraud as well. You do have that, you know, that nascent risk of things crashing and burning, and it's going to keep a lot of people on the sidelines. But if you, I can't think of a single industry right now that is more ripe to be invaded by technology than financial services. I don't think there's a single aspect of financial services right now that is going to be safe from innovation over the next 10 to 15 years. I just don't, I'm not smart enough or I'm not, I'm not quite sure exactly what it's going to look like. I mean, let's go down the list. Oh, Mike, you're, you've got 40 years in insurance. You tell me, do you feel like the insurance industry is being run on 2020 standards right now? No, not yet. I mean, it's, it's, it's at the very beginning. You're starting to see, you know, life insurance is a good example, right? Life insurance is still bought for the most part, the old fashioned way. And it feels archaic, this process that you have to go through. But, you know, I've been reading about all these companies that are, that are trying to, I mean, somebody just came out, I forget what the name of the company that is a completely online life insurance company. They have no representatives anywhere and, and they don't distribute through humans. It's, it's a hundred percent online. You know, I don't know how they're doing. I don't know what, what the results will be, but you know, I suspect it'll be like anything else as new technology. They'll probably limp along and, and someone else will, will come along and, and improve what they do and, and it'll change the industry. It'll be the way people buy life insurance. I mean, think about on the advisory side, Mike, how, many, how much of our business or at least dealing with custodians, do we still have to use a fax machine? I mean, it's absolutely I staggering. I mean, I don't even know how to use a fax machine anymore. Well, the claim there is it has something to do with security, which doesn't really make any sense to me, but that's that's what they tell you. Just dragging their feet. I mean, look, Mike, you know, we were at this conference a couple, I guess a couple of weeks ago, uh, where the chief investment officer of a large firm was talking about how they favored these old financial services institutions like JP Morgan and the big banks because versus the new and up and comers because the valuations were more attractive. But you know, he was, I remember him talking about how JP Morgan made, I forgot the number, 32, 33 billion in net income last year. And you know, th- they can take all of that and figure out a way to fight and, and squash PayPal. And you know, we're not giving stock advice here, but you sit there and think, okay, you got a company that's so big, they don't even know how many divisions they have. You think they're going to take that 30 Three billion and win, or are they going to burn twenty nine billion of that in shareholder value? And that other remainder, they might catch up for a while, realize that they're so far behind, and then just give up. It's a completely different mindset. These old institutions, you know, it's like the cable companies a couple of years ago. They they didn't have any 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 incentive whatsoever to change because they were they were monopolies. As I recall your comment to me, you leaned over and said they might as well make, take twenty nine billion of it and light it on fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it's it's, it's uh, because I, I served time in the big banks for, for, for a number of years. They're just not set up for that. You can't compare an old institute like financial services company to the speed and pace of PayPal. And PayPal's not a small company either. I mean, PayPal it was, wasn't founded four years ago. It's been around for a while. But look, they're innovating in ways that uh, it's going to take... And, and I'm not naming companies specifically, let's just say large banks in general, it's going to take them a long time to even get the talent in the door to, 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 to start competing. The question is, can they do it though? So I was just listening to another podcast where they were talking about the Olympics this year and how for the first time, the majority of the Olympics, the only way you can watch it is if you have Peacock, which is NBC's streaming service. So NBC is not going to air it on cable at all. If you want to watch it, you have to pay for their streaming. 
I mean, this goes a long way, right? If you go back even just a few years ago and cable companies were doing everything to keep you away from streaming, but it is what it is, right? And, and I guess they've seen the light and they said, okay, you know, we have no choice. We have to adapt. And this is NBC's way of adapting. You know, whether or not that's going to be effective, I have no idea, but at least they've seen the light and they're going to put in the effort. Do you think some of these larger banks and institutions will be able to make that switch even if they want to? Well, Remy, you've you've renovated homes before. A lot of times it makes more sense to just tear the thing down and rebuild it. Just about every time. Yeah. I mean, you, you start putting band-aids on situation or, you know, you're, you know, Remy, you write code. I used to write code many, many years ago. I, I remember taking over code bases from other people and looking at them and saying, this is going to be... 10 times the amount of work to try to fix it versus just scrapping it and starting from scratch. So you took the words out of my mouth. That was going to be the next thing I was going to say. I've almost gotten to the point where I don't even look at other people's code anymore. I just, I go through whatever the application is. I see whatever, whatever needs to be developed and whatever functionality needs to be built in. And I just start from scratch. podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management LLC and Darwin Advisors LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk and there could be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.